All right, as we continue our study of the life of Christ, I'm very thankful to Stan Quinn for jumping in last week and, and covering some material for me in, in my absence. And, and uh, I'm just grateful that it's uh, gone a week where my family hasn't been sick and we're able to be here for two services, and two, for a Sunday and a Wednesday back-to-back for the first time in a while. So we're, we're grateful for that. Uh, tonight we're going to begin looking at really the last... 24 hours of Jesus' life. Can you believe that we're at that point? Uh, we're in our third, um, our third quarter of this study, and, and we're not even really halfway through this quarter, and we're down to, we're on a ticking clock with, with the life of Jesus. We're going to transition tonight and start looking at uh, the Last Supper. Now, I do not believe we will cover the entirety of this subject tonight. Um, we'll be probably splitting this up between two nights, but this is going to be our focus uh, this week and potentially next week. And for our reading tonight, you, you, you've noticed I like to read all four gospel accounts. Well, from this point forward, I'm going to do something a little bit different with our scripture reading uh, each night. I'm going to blend them together into one cohesive reading. And what I mean by that is I'm going to, uh, to take all four accounts of the events, uh, whether it's the Last Supper or Jesus' trials or Jesus' crucifixion or whatever it is, and I'm going to mesh them together so that, that you get the basic details from each gospel brought together into one reading. It's my own version of, of meshing these gospel accounts together. I'm not changing words. I'm just spe- uh, cutting and slicing from one gospel, adding in, and add it, from each gospel and adding it together. And you'll be able to see this. Uh, you can kind of see it on the screen here. Each gospel account is going to be in a different color. So as you can see on this screen right now, I'm going to, in white, have Luke's account. In yellow, it's going to be John's. You'll eventually see Matthew's in blue, Mark's in green. And I've kind of picked and choose which, which accounts to use at different points to make sure all the details get included. Uh, but this is kind of a, a unique way of looking at the text. And it's one that I think helps when we've got uh, this much content to cover. Remember, when we're dealing with these last events in Jesus' life, what we ultimately have is the bulk of the Gospels dedicated to just a few hours in the life of Jesus. So I really want us to, to help speed it along. We'll have one consistent reading. This is going to take a little while because it is covering a lot of material. It's about six or seven slides worth of verses here. And you'll see as the transitions happen. Um, you'll also notice in a, in, a, in a superscript, you'll see verse numbers. And those are tailored to the gospel account they come from. So in white, the verse numbers all relate to Luke 22. In yellow, all the verse numbers relate to John chapter 13. And you'll notice, uh, like on the screen right now, we start in verse 7 with Luke and go through verse 14. And then we start in verse 2 of John. So it's going to, of John 13. So it's going to bounce around a little bit. And hopefully you'll, you'll kind of pick up on how this is working. But I believe it gives us a good idea. Uh, 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 a, a single reading with all the information basically brought together. So bear with me as we read now. Uh, we're going to start with Luke's account, transition to John's. You'll see Matthew and Mark's eventually fit in. We'll bounce around between all four gospel accounts. So, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come, to, come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What am I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You have no share with oh, excuse me. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate, bread, who, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, tr that, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. The Son of Man goes, at, go, goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. And they began to question one another, Which of them it could be who was going to do this? One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you, rather... Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink of, at my table in my kingdom and sit on the throne judging the twelve tribes of Israel." Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. 
I know that was a long reading, but it brings together all four gospel accounts and hopefully helps paint a picture to, uh, for us of the entire series of events that really take place that night during the Last Supper. Now, John has more in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 will uh, take place as conversation between Jesus and his disciples in that upper room. Uh, we're not going to deal with all of that, focused on the events that take place from the start of the supper until Peter's denial is announced. And, and those series of events are what we'll be focusing on tonight and next week. There are essentially uh, five big events, I believe it is, uh, that take place during the Last Supper that I want to focus upon. And, uh, we'll start with this, and that is the Passover preparations. My PowerPoint is pretty much going to look like this tonight and next week, where I simply give you the section that we're dealing with, and then we're going to talk about it. So if you're used to having a lot of note-taking opportunity, you're not going to see that with this PowerPoint. It's going to be more focused on letting you know where we're at in the storyline of the, of the Last Supper. But let's talk about the preparations that are involved here first and foremost. Now, as I've done uh, repeatedly in this, this uh, series, as we've entered the last week of Jesus' life, I do want to put this in context of time. When in the last week of Jesus' life did, did this take place? You'll notice, if you look at Matthew and Mark's account, both of them begin their section on the Last Supper with the phrase, on the first day of unleavened bread. Luke simply says, the day of unleavened bread. Mark and Luke do nuance their reference by adding that this is the day when they sacrifice the Passover lamb. So we have a context for understanding when the Last Supper takes place. We know it's going to take place on, 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 on Passover, but Passover takes place on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the day on which the lamb is sacrificed. Those details are specifically mentioned in, in the gospel accounts for us. So let's look at this little timeline I made, if it still makes sense to you. Just as way of reminder, and I still forget that I've got to edit this. Uh, at the top, this is a time frame. You can't see it, but this is supposed to be 6 p.m., 9 p.m., midnight, uh, 3 a.m., 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 noon, 3 p.m. It's set up this way because a Jewish day started at sundown roughly around 6 p.m. That's just a general uh, idea to help us keep up with time. But the Jewish day started when the sun went down and, and lasted until the next sundown. That is odd to us because our days start at midnight. What I have done is color-coded the days for us. So, so uh, Monday for us is highlighted in purple, starting at midnight on what we consider the start of Monday, going through till the, to the next, until 11.59 p.m. that day, and then tr transitioning into Tuesday. But for them, that day started six hours roughly, six hours earlier. And so we've got uh, the columns represent the Jewish time and days, whereas the color coding represents our days. And we do know uh, that Nisan 15 is the day of first day of unleavened bread, Passover, based on Mosaic law, which you can read in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 5 through 7. The 15th day of, of that particular month was when you were supposed to sacrifice uh, the lamb. Uh, at sundown. Now, we've been calculating uh, our days uh, of the, this last week of Jesus' life based on the understanding that Nisan 15 is taking place then. I took the traditional approach of Nisan 15 being on Friday. There is an alternative timeline out there that has some good arguments for it um, that would place um, the first day of unleavened bread and, and, or Passover on what would be Thursday for us. I choose to go with this route. And because I'm teaching, you have to deal with it. Um, if we back up, we know, based on John chapter 12 and verse 1, that the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary uh, happened uh, six days before the, feet, the Passover. And so that gives us a marker of that event. And we know that the triumphal entry happened the day after Mary anointed Jesus' feet, based on John chapter 12 and verse 12. So, so we are able to fit these two events in early. We also know the temple cleansing happened the day after the triumphal entry, so we, those fit nicely for us. 
Uh, last week, Brother Stan Quinn covered some of the events that happened also on that same day uh, of the temple cleansing, as well as some of the subsequent days there during that last week of Jesus' life. We are actually, uh, for the event of the Last Supper, we're jumping ahead. Remember, Last Supper is taking place the same night as the Passover, the first day of unleavened bread. So I'm just going to change the terminology on Nisan 15. The Last Supper would have taken place starting at sundown on Nisan 15. The preparations would have started taking place on what we know as Thursday on Nisan 14. And, and those, those preparations would have started earlier, but the actual uh, Passover meal would have been celebrated that evening starting at sundown. That just gives us a timetable to understand what's happening here. And it's... Um, it's it's significant that this is all centering around Passover. We'll talk more about that in a minute when we actually get into the institution of the Lord's Supper, but this is one of the uh, highest holy days in the, the Israelite faith, in the Jewish faith. This and the Day of the Atonement were really the two biggest uh, religious events of the year, and you, this is one of those holy days that Jews were expected to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And, and uh, I'm going to do some reading here in just a moment regarding how, these, uh, um, how this particular event took place. Um, so we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But now I want you to think about preparation. Jesus gave some specific instructions to a couple of his disciples on how to prepare for this feast. Luke probably has uh, the, the most details regarding this or some of the, the, the specific details that are easiest to read. And basically it boils down to this. Jesus sends Peter and John into Jerusalem to go find, find a place for them to have the Passover meal. And he's doing this the same day as he's going to observe it. Now, I don't know about you, have you ever tried to make a reservation during a major holiday? On the day of the major holiday. How well do those kind of reservations work out? Have you ever tried to book a reservation at a restaurant for Valentine's Day night on Valentine's Day? Does it work out for you very well? No, not typically unless you're just planning to go to Waffle House, but I don't think most of you are going to Waffle House for Valentine's Day. Booking a reservation on the day is not a good idea. And considering he's in Jerusalem, thousands of people have migrated to Jerusalem for this feast, and they're having to find places in Jerusalem to observe it, because at that time and I'm quoting uh, from one commentary, it was a rule in Jerusalem, uh, excuse me, the, the Passover lamb had to be slain in Jerusalem at the temple. That's a requirement based on Exodus chapter 12 and verse 6. And then it was to be eaten in the city of Jerusalem. That by the first century, by New Testament times, Passover lambs were sacrificed between the 9th and 11th hour. That's 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. And since thousands of pilgrims came to Jerusalem for the feast, the slaughtering of the Passover lambs was done at the temple in three massive shifts. And then the people would, uh, re the, the lamb that was sacrificed was taken home, and the meat was roasted, and they were eat, eaten in the city in Jerusalem. Those living in Jerusalem would open up their homes to guests in town and, and utilize whatever free space they had to allow somebody who's a non-resident to be able to, to eat the Passover meal in the city of Jerusalem. So you have thousands of people who have come to town to participate in the Passover, and they're all going to be vying for accommodations in which to eat this meal that evening. And Jesus sends Peter and John to find somewhere that day to observe this meal. Under normal circumstances, that's going to be a hard task. 
But if you look at the gospel accounts, Jesus tells them how they're going to find the right place to go. There's going to be a guy carrying a water jar. Just follow him. When he gets to his house, you tell him, hey, uh, the teacher needs a place to observe the Passover, and he'll show you this upper room, and all the preparations will be, be ready. I mean, there's incredible divine foreknowledge here, and, and Peter and John go into town and find it exactly as Jesus told them. One of the unique things that most commentators mention is that it was unusual for a man to be carrying a water jar. So that was something that really would have stood out when they got into town. That was, nor that was one of those normal uh, chores that a, a woman would do. And so the fact that a man would be carrying it was going to be a very easy-to-spot sign in Jerusalem. That's just something most commentators mention. Regardless of how easy it was to find this guy, everything went according to Jesus' plan. Now you could, as some try to do, chalk this up to this. Jesus had made some sort of pre-arrangement with this guy during the course of the week. Or you can chalk it up to God being in control. One thing that stands out to me is I, I think the fact that this was so easy to arrange and that everything Jesus had this, everything Jesus said would happen did happen, I think this helps speak to or to emphasize the, the divine will of God. One thing that stands out to me in, in the, these final events of Jesus' life is the transition of how he speaks about his time. In John's gospel, this stands out the most. But five times early in John's gospel, Jesus will say, my time has not yet come, or my hour has not yet come. The first time you see it is actually the wedding in John chapter 2, when his mom says, hey, I, uh, when his mom basically recruits him to fix the, the, the wine problem, Jesus says, woman, my time has not yet come. He will say that five times between John chapter 2 and John chapter 8. Five times, my time has not yet come. Meaning, it, 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 this, it, the end is not now. The, the time of my departure has not arrived. But, but his language changed in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, uh, some, some uh, Greeks come and speak to him. And it's in this unique moment that, that I'm not spending the time covering. But, but in John chapter 12, he's approached by these Gentiles... And in an act of prophecy, you could say, he finally speaks about his time being at hand. It's interesting because it wasn't Jewish people that came to talk to him. It was Gentiles. And what does his sacrifice accomplish? One of the key things his sacrifice accomplishes is universal salvation for both Jews and Greeks, for both Jews and Gentiles specifically. In John chapter 12, there's a transition in language where Jesus is acknowledging that his time has come. Now look at John chapter 13 in the very first verse. We didn't read it in our reading. I left it out kind of intentionally. But John's gospel, with the events of the Last Supper, begins in the middle of that verse, chapter 13 and verse 1, with the phrase, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. When Jesus knew that his hour had come. Prior to this, Jesus had declared his, how, his hour or his time had not yet come. But now, starting with John chapter 12 and verse 23, Jesus is saying, my hour has come. And I get the sense that maybe in declaring how his disciples would find this upper room for them to celebrate in, he's helping guide them in seeing Oh yeah, God has orchestrated this time. God has decided this time. God's in control. We walked into town. We saw the guy with the water jar. We followed him to his house. We told him a teacher needed a room, and he gave us a room. How could that happen except that God's in control? That the time is in his hands, to use some language from, from uh, David in the Psalms. And so I, I think... The, this whole preparation situation, I think one of the significant things about the preparation process is it's demonstrating to Jesus' disciples that God's orchestrated what's about to happen. That these 
events are unfolding according to His divine will. Because if you remember, when Jesus first started telling His disciples, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and the chief priests and the scribes, they're going to execute me. What was their reaction? What was Peter's reaction? Nope, not going to happen. Not going to let them do it. When he told his disciples that, hey, Lazarus is sick, we're going to go see Lazarus, they're like, no, 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 you can't go down there. They, they want to kill you down there. We, we can't go down there. See, every time Jesus would bring up his impending death, his disciples got a little antsy, got a little uncomfortable. His disciples wanted to intervene. Maybe here, Peter being one of the two disciples he sent to, or, to, to uh, secure their accommodations for the Passover, he's, getting, he's giving Peter the opportunity to see that God is in control and orchestrating everything that's happening. I think that's something that might be significant about the, the whole preparation process. I also think it's significant who he chose. He chose Peter and John to go make these arrangements. In the way we operate today, and we needed accommodations for something, we're going to usually assign that task to the low man on the totem pole, to the interns, to somebody who's of no significance. That's an easy task. Let's give it to the, um, the, the, the person who makes the least amount of money or the person who has the least amount of responsibility. They can handle that. Jesus assigned it to two of his most trusted disciples. Two of the three guys who had unique experiences on the Mount of Transfiguration in the room uh, with Jairus' daughter and who he will summon when they go into the Garden of Gethsemane to be close to him in his, in his most difficult hour. Jesus didn't assign this to the little apostles. He assigned it to the big apostles, Peter and John, the two guys who are going to show up at the empty tomb to peek inside. They're the guys who are making the accommodations for the Passover meal. And I've always found it interesting that there are just the two of them. And I can't help but wonder, I can't help but wonder if part of the reason Jesus sent them to those two individuals to make these arrangements is so that not everybody among his, among his apostles would know where they're meeting. Now, why might that be significant? If you pay attention, or if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of these events, the little story that is presented immediately before we enter the Last Supper and the preparations for the, that Passover meal talks about Judas' arrangements with the chief priests. It makes me wonder, did Jesus intentionally select Peter and John, two of his most trusted and most intimate disciples, to go handle this accommodation so that Judas wouldn't know the location ahead of time? There's one detail that stands out to me about Judas' arrangements with the chief priests. It's mentioned in Luke chapter 22 and verse 6. We're told that Judas was strategically planning to betray Jesus, to hand him over in the absence of a crowd. One thing that the religious leaders did not want to do is to arrest Jesus in a public space. That has, that's repeated over and over again in the gospel accounts because Jesus was so popular, because the people were so... Uh, um, enthralled with Jesus, they feared an uprising. They feared a revolt if they took him in a public way. So they, were, so they, with Judas, were planning a private takedown of Jesus. And that's what they accomplished in the Garden of Gethsemane. But what if, Jesus, what if Judas knew the location of the Passover meal? Could it be in that intimate setting where there's just, just Jesus and his 12 apostles and a few others gathered together for a meal. Wouldn't that be a nice private setting to bring those leaders to? Indoors. No escape routes. What if Jesus is thinking practically as well? 
that maybe so that I can spend this time with my apostles, I can have this last period of teaching with them. I can observe this Passover with them, and I can institute the Lord's Supper with them without concerns that Judas is going to utilize. This is the opportunity to bring the mob to get me. What if there's some practical thinking on Jesus' part here? That might be stretching it a little bit, but, but that's where my mind goes. That's what my mind ponders. As one commentator said, by keeping this meeting place a secret, Jesus made sure Judas could not tell the rulers where he and his apostles would be during that crucial time. Because, remember, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to observe this with you. Jesus was longing for this opportunity to observe the Passover with his, with his disciples because he knew, he knew what he was going to do in the midst of it as far as instituting the Lord's Supper. He was going to give that meal new meaning in the context of what was going to happen to him the next day. So I think something other, another significant thing about the preparation is the possibility that Jesus, Jesus is that it indicates Jesus' awareness of Judas's pending betrayal, and he wanted to make sure that it didn't get interrupted. So they find, so they make these arrangements. They're going to meet in this upper room at this individual's house. And some credit needs to be given to this unnamed man who's accepting Jesus and his disciples into his house for the Passover that night. Jesus is a wanted man. At the end of John chapter 11, after the, the raising of Lazarus, the religious leaders have made it known, if you see Jesus, tell us, because we're going to get him. And so if, if you're someone who's letting Jesus in your home, you're inviting persecution on yourself. If you're letting this wanted man observe the Passover in your house, you're taking a risk yourself. With the raising of Lazarus, the religious leaders wanted to kill Lazarus too. So we should give some credit to this unnamed man who allowed Jesus to use his, 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 his room and his house despite the risk it posed to him. Now, the first thing that really stands out about the uh, Last Supper is the washing of the disciples' feet. John's the only one who records this for us. It's in John chapter 13, verses 2 through 20 primarily. But let's, let's talk about the foot washing for a moment. It is one of those stories that makes its way into a lot of uh, sermons because of the significant example Jesus sets in it. But if you look at John chapter 13 and verse 2, depending on what translation you read, you're, you can't really quite tell where in that evening the foot washing took place. The New King James indicates that the foot washing took place after the meal. It says, in supper being ended, in John 13, verse 2. The New American Standard Version says during supper. The English Standard Version also says during supper. And the NIV, at least the pre-2011 update of the NIV, says that the foot washing took place during the meal. Or as the evening meal was being served. So was it during or was it after? Or was it before? Foot washing traditionally took place before a meal. That was when it was supposed to happen. So in this instance, it may have been delayed until some point during the meal because no servant was present to do it and no disciple was willing to subject himself to that menial task. The Passover meal wasn't just a meal where you got around the table and you brought the food out, you ate and you quit. There were phases to it. There were, were programmatic things you did in the course of that meal. You ate certain foods at certain times. You drank certain drinks at certain times, all in commemoration of the Passover. And so it was longer than you and I would consider a meal to be, certainly longer than we take for the Lord's Supper. And so for it to happen during the meal, could mean that at some point during the course of the meal, Jesus interrupted, rose from the table, 
wrapped that towel around his waist, and started washing feet. It is, seems unlikely, based on the order of events, that it, the whole meal, all the phases of the Passover meal concluded before Jesus did this. It seems more likely that at some point during the meal, or maybe early enough in the meal before they had started observing the commemorative parts of the Passover, he did this. But the key thing is that Jesus is the one who does it. The significant thing here is they've traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, at this point in the week, they've been staying overnight in Bethany for several nights, two miles outside of the city, so it's not that long of a trip each day. But they've been traveling where there are no paved roads, no concrete sidewalks, no wooden boardwalks, no asphalt drives. It's just all dirt and sand. And they don't have Nikes or Vans or Sperry's or any other special shoes to wear. They're just wearing sandals, open-toed sandals. Their feet get dirty. And so the hospitality in that culture that you're supposed to show to a guest in your home when they arrive, you wash their feet. And one of the reasons you wash their feet is because of the way they dine. See, we're used to pulling up a chair next to a table and sitting around all elevated. That wasn't how they did it back then. When it says that they recline at table, they literally reclined at a table. The estimates I've seen are that the tables they would eat at were 18 inches off the floor. Not very tall. And you may have seen pictures of this. I mean, we've got our our famous uh, Last Supper scene there on the screen that's not likely how they sat around the table. They typically laid down on their side. Typically on their left side, because most people, most were predominantly right, but they'd lay down on their left side with their face toward the table, their feet away from the table. You wanted your feet away from the food, right? You don't want your feet near the food. That was traditionally how they gathered around a table to eat. And me, I'm sitting here thinking, how is that comfortable for eating? But that's their cultural practice. And so, Jesus rises from his reclined position. It's not his house. He's not the master of this house. He's not the owner of this house. It's the owner or the master's responsibility to make sure that the guest's feet get washed. He's a guest in this house just like every other person who's with him. And the thing is, Jewish men did not wash feet. That was too small of a task for a Jewish man to do. That task was reserved for your servants. And if you had a Jewish servant, a a male Jewish servant, he wasn't the one you chose. You would choose a Gentile, a child, or a woman to do the foot washing. You notice there's a couple of occasions in the Gospels that Jesus gets his feet washed. And who washes Jesus' feet? Women. Here Jesus is at this house. It's not his house, so it's not his responsibility. Above all that, he's the rabbi in the moment. He's the one of superior status. It's not his responsibility. But nobody does it. Nobody sees to it that this act of hospitality is granted before the meal starts. So Jesus pushes away from the table. Jesus grabs the towel. Jesus takes off his outer garments. And he starts washing feet. Have you ever ever washed somebody's feet before? It's not very pleasant. Now, 
many of you go and get pedicures, and so there are people who do it. I mean, there are people who are involved in the foot care industry. And maybe you have been so kind as to rub your spouse's feet at the end of a long day. But they weren't essentially walking around barefoot all day. I don't know if you feel this way, but feet are disgusting. In our culture, in our humid southern culture with closed shoes, feet get disgusting. And Jesus is about to eat. I mean, think about that. They're about to eat. And he's going around cleaning these disgusting feet. He doesn't have any Germex next to him. There's not flowing water in the house with some good antiseptic soap for him to wash his hands afterwards. This is a disgusting task. And, and I don't think we can ever fully appreciate just how gross it is. Just how demeaning it is. Because in our culture, we, we, we don't have something that compares as much. But the reaction of Peter tells us everything we need to know about, what, about how demeaning this is. Because when Jesus approaches Peter, Peter's like, nope, you're not touching my feet. I bet Peter had some nasty feet. I bet Jesus, he probably had some crooked toes, some big calluses, and they probably stunk really bad. I mean, this guy used to work on a boat. And Peter wasn't going to let Jesus touch his feet. There's a part of me that respects Peter here, even though Peter's speaking out of ignorance. But I can't help but feel, if I was in Peter's shoes, that I would be pulling my feet back too. Peter's not going to let him. And Peter's repulsion at the idea that Jesus is going to wash his feet tells us everything we need to know about how horrible this is. But of course, Jesus explains the necessity of it to Peter, and Peter relents. What I really want you to think about tonight, and this is going to be the last thing we talk about before our time is up, is why Jesus washed their feet. What's Jesus accomplishing by washing their feet? And there are two things that stand out to me. One, it's an expression of love. Jesus is expressing his love for his disciples that night by washing their feet. There's an interesting phrase that appears in John chapter 13 and verse 1 that's worth noticing. That verse, John 13 verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, here's the part that stands out, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's a reference to his disciples especially. Before we get to the foot washing, John declares how much Jesus loved the men whose feet he's about to wash. And let's think about those men for a moment. Among those men is Judas Iscariot. Judas has not left yet. Jesus is going to wash Judas's feet knowing that Judas is going to leave that night and betray him. Of course, we know Peter's there. We just had mentioned him and how he, he tried to prevent Jesus from doing it. Jesus is going to wash Peter's feet all the while knowing that in just a few hours, Peter's going to deny him three times. And then there's ten other guys around this table that Jesus is going to wash the feet of, knowing that when he's arrested in the garden, every one of them is going to run for their lives, protect their own skin. And despite knowing all of this, despite prophesying all of this, despite predicting all of this, Jesus still washes their feet. That's how much he loves them. He loves them enough to still do this, even though he knows they're all going to turn on him in just a few hours. And then after that foot washing, it's a little later in John chapter 13, 
But Jesus used his demonstration of love in the foot washing as a means to teach his disciples about love. So if you look down at verse 34 and 35 of John 13, after he's washed their feet, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I quote that a lot in sermons. But think about the impact of what he, he says in those two verses. A new commandment I give to you. This is not a new commandment. The commandment is love one another. It's not new. Jesus has said this time and time again. You can journey back to Mark chapter 12 when a, when a lawyer comes up to him and says, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says that the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. He's already taught them to love one another. This is not a new commandment. But on this occasion, he does identify a new standard by which to adhere to that commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, that part they already knew. This is the part that was the new standard. As I have loved you. And he says that in the context of what he just did. You love the same way I just loved you when I picked up that towel and I washed your feet. That's how you love each other. He's giving them a new standard by which to measure their love. And when he does that, you know what he does? He strips away the application of a golden rule standard because that's how we love people, right? And that's, that's how they love people. Treat others the way you want to be treated. That's how we love. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not good enough. You don't just love people the way you want to be loved. You love people the way that I loved you. That's the new rule for love. And he also eliminates what I often refer to as the reciprocity principle of love. I love you if you love me in return. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And what Jesus does here is he says, you don't, you just, by, my, by saying you love as I have loved you, he's saying you don't just love people because they love you in return. You love people regardless. Because in just a few moments, when those disciples flee, or when Peter denies, or when Judas betrays, they're going to be forced to remember that he loved them in spite of what they're going to do. You don't love because you're going to receive it back in return. You love because I loved you first. Jesus washed their feet that night to teach them something about love that they haven't fully grasped yet. But I also think Jesus washed their feet that night to help them understand what it means to be great. One of the things that makes me just look at the disciples and think, how dumb are you? Is that on this evening, the, after the Last Supper, they have an argument. The disciples have an argument among themselves do you know what the subject of that argument was? Luke 22. Anybody know? Who is the greatest? What? They've had this argument th like a couple times before. They have it shortly after the transfiguration when, the, when uh, they couldn't exorcise a demon-possessed boy. They got into an argument about who was the greatest then. That's recorded in, in uh, Matthew chapter 17. Or Matthew chapter 18, I should, should say. Mark chapter 9, they got into an argument about who was the greatest as well. And here they are. After Jesus has washed their feet, they get in an argument about who is the greatest. Now, look at John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. Immediately after he finishes washing their feet, this is what Jesus says to them. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus indicated that greatness in the kingdom is found in service on earth. And this shouldn't come as a surprise because Jesus had declared in his own ministry that he came not to be served, but to serve. That was his mission statement. And he taught that to be great, you had to be willing to be a servant. And that night, he showed them what that looked like. See, I believe Jesus washed their feet because he knew there was no better way for them to learn two very important lessons that they needed to get before he was gone. They needed to understand love in its fullness. And they needed to stop having these arguments about who is the greatest. They needed to understand what greatness really meant. Because they were still vying for positions of power in this kingdom that they didn't fully grasp yet. That night when Jesus washed their feet, he taught them more than maybe any other time. And that's why as preachers we'll appeal to this one story so often because it, when you unpack what Jesus did that day, it's amazing. He washed their feet when it never should have been him in the first place. And when you think about how that relates to what's going to happen in a few hours when he's hanging on a cross, it's the exact same thing. He died on the cross when he shouldn't have been there in the first place. He took the place that you and I should have taken. So the washing of the disciples' feet is this beautiful and significant event that kicks off the Last Supper. With that, I'm going to draw our study tonight to a close, and next week we'll resume talking about the Passover, or the Last Supper, by talking about how the Lord's Supper was instituted, about this portion of him identifying who's going to betray him, and then also about him prophesying Peter's denial. So there's three more things about the Last Supper for us to discuss. I thank you for your, your time and attention tonight, and hope our study continues to be a blessing for you. Um, you are dismissed.